Welcome. I'm Warren Odess Gillette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Hushadar Mahla on July 12, 2021. Hushadar is Professor Emeritus at Central Michigan University. He taught courses in psychology of human development, educational psychology, mental health, and creativity. He's the author of more than 50 volumes. His works cover the subjects on the Bible, the Quran, and the fulfillment of prophecies in both. He's written a three-volume set of prophecies on the coming of Jesus called I Shall Come Again, Lord of Lords, and King of Kings. He also wrote a book just as comprehensively for Muslims titled Baha'u'llah in the Quran that was written in Farsi and is now being translated into English. You can find his books at his website globalperspective.org and he's offering them online for free at his website theknowledgeofgod.com. I started the interview by asking Hushadar where he grew up. I grew up in the largest Baha'i center in the world in the city of Tehran. Those years when I was young until age 23 were the best years of my life until uh, changes took place and the revolution took place. When the revolution took place, I was in in the United States. I came to this country at age 23. The reason was discrimination, and this was during the Shah, that I was going to college, and uh, I was planning to become a high school teacher. They, they told me that Baha'i cannot teach in high school because <laughs> I could have some influence on people. So that was the incentive for coming to the United States at age 23. I was attending university. Uh, I got a notice that I could not become a teacher. I wanted to teach English to I, I love language, and that's, I thought that's the best way to make a living and also learn English. But I got a notice when I was a sophomore that I could not pursue that. That was the incentive for me to decide to come to this country. I was not from a rich family. In those days, coming to the United States was only for the richest people. And you can imagine how difficult decision this was for me to decide with little money that I had to come to this country. I uh, learned that the best, the cheapest way to come to the United States is by ship, not by plane. I had um, saved about $550 teaching English and some from my family. That's all the money I had. Uh, So I went to Istanbul, the largest city in Turkey, hoping to find a ship that would take me to bring me to the United States. One day I was walking on on the street and uh, I said, I will ask someone I didn't know anyone I had no I didn't know a Turkish language I hope that this person would, would speak in English so I asked him uh, in, on the street do you speak English he said yes I do I said I'm looking uh, for a ship company to come to the, uh, go to Narset uh, he said I'm an employee of a ship company what a surprise <laughs> he first he could speak English and second he was an employee in that big city of several million uh, so he said, uh, I said, could you help me find the, the address of this company? He said, I give you the address of the CEO of this company. Uh, 
His name is Asim Alniak. I still remember his name. Uh, he said, go to him and talk to him. Uh, so the next day I uh, took a bus, found his apartment and uh, knock on the door and a short chubby man came. He said, what can I do for you? I said, I want to go to the United States. I understand you are in a ship company. Please, uh, what, what can I do? He said, do you have a visa? I said, yes. He said, bring, you, bring me your visa. So I went to, to my hotel, and the next day I came back with my visa. He looked at the visa and noticed it was valid. So he took a business card and wrote a notice. I do not know what he wrote in Turkish. He said, the ship is coming in two weeks. Make sure you don't miss the ship. So every day I would go to the ocean and the beach and see if that ship would arrive. One day I noticed the ship was two-story tall. Hi. I called to the captain and he said, bring your luggage as soon as you can. We're leaving soon. So I took a taxi, rushed to my hotel and came back. He said, go up two stories high. And while I was going up, I was pulling myself with uh, hanging on a rope and the rope gave in and I almost fell on my back into the ocean and God knows what would have happened to me. Uh, I was so scared I couldn't go any farther. Um, a man who was watching me took pity on me and took my briefcase. So I stayed in that ship for two months. We went to Spain, France, North Africa, Algeria, another country in North Africa. And after two months on this ship, which was with cargo and passenger, there were 10 other passengers, they were all Turkish. I arrived in Philadelphia after two months. I did not pay a penny for this travel. I had the best time with those passengers and the best food. Every country we went, we were tourists, enjoy watching, walking through the city. It was most enjoyable time. I arrived in, in Philadelphia and then I took a bus. I had an acceptance from university, from a college in Alabama because that was the cheapest I could find. So I took a bus and arrived in Livingston, Alabama. They said, you have been late three months. I, I spent one month in Turkey, two months in ship, so I was late three months. And what a surprise. I arrived the first day of the quarter. It was 21st of March. The first day of spring, I did not miss even one day from my college. You've written over 50 volumes. Were you interested in writing when you were young? Absolutely. When I was in elementary school, I got the best grade in writing, composition, and also in high school and later in college. I have always loved language, and I was in love with English and also Persian language, and that was the two languages I wrote my books, uh, about seven of them in, in Farsi and the rest in English. Yes, I love language. You could not imagine anyone more interested in literature and language. And I understand your books focus on either introducing the Baha'i faith or the Baha'i teachings in regards to the advent of Jesus, and also books addressed to Muslims about the Baha'i faith. And I wanted to start with you describing the books that you've written that introduce people to the Baha'i faith. Can you describe those yes. for me? Yes. One book I wrote is called On Wings of Destiny, is addressed to highly educated people. I have another book, it's called One God, Many Faiths, One Garden, Many Flowers, another introductory book, and another one 
is uh, Baha'i Faith, God's Greatest Gift to Humankind. These are all introductory books, each of them unique, intended for a special audience. The reader then gets an introduction to what the Baha'i Faith is with these books. Yes, and there is a volume about Baha'u'llah. Baha'u'llah, the one promising all the scriptures, is a very powerful book. Uh, my focus has been Christianity, 90% and 10% Muslim faith. Uh, so that's what I like to cover more than any other topic. Yeah, addressing Christians who are living in this country, it is great majority are Christians. So tell us uh, about the books you wrote discussing the advent of Jesus. I do not know. Many people ask me, how could you get started on these volumes? I have written three-volume set of prophecies called I Shall Come Again, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, each over 500 pages. Christians believe that there are 1,800 prophecies about the second advent and 300 prophecies about the first advent. So you can imagine there are six times more prophecies. So, Hugh, when you mean the first advent and the second advent, you mean the first advent being Jesus and then the second advent is his return? Yes, he returned in, in the name of Baha'u'llah and his forerunner, the Bab, who appeared in 1844, a date that is repeated 16 times. is incredible. In I Shall Come Again, mostly devoted to time prophecies, you will find 16 time prophecies that point to 1844 as a time of return of Christ. And that is a date that many thousands of Christians discovered. It's called Millerite Movement. You'll find it anywhere on the internet. And they expected the return of Christ from the sky. And my books, all of them address this issue that sky should not be taken literally. Maybe we could talk about that later. The second volume is about prophecies other than dates. And I use a statistical analysis to show that they could not happen by chance. And the third volume, King of Kings, is continuation of those prophecies. Mm -hmm. These are my major works. And then I have another book I brought as, an, as a sample. Uh, it says, Let us reason together, said the Lord. It's response to a pastor who read one of my books, uh, wrote a rebuttal uh, to the Baha'i Faith, actually. And I responded uh, to him in that book. So would you like to read an excerpt from one of these books? Yes, it's on my table. Uh, dear Pastor, for instance, I just open up a chance first. Uh, you deserve much credit for taking the time to read my book. This is a rare phenomenon. For this achievement, I offer you my deepest gratitude and most profound appreciation. Please do not be surprised by my lengthy response. The questions you have raised are critical. They deserve the thinking of millions of other Christians, sincere and thoughtful Christians like yourself. Uh, they deserve the most serious attention. What are you reading from, Hugh? It is called, Come now, let us reason together, said the Lord. It's a response to a pastor who thought that he could refute the Baha'i teachings, and I wrote this book in response to his objection. Many people, Christians, they really trust their pastors. So they believe and they do not hear the other side. In this book, I quote a quotation from the Bible that says, present your case, says the Lord, set forth your arguments. The first to present his case seems right, till another comes forward 
and questions him. This is from the book of Proverbs. It's on the back of the book. This is for Christians who believe that they, by just hearing one side, that's all they need. And that's the problem. People mm-hmm. do not realize that in a court of law, you must hear from both sides to make a judgment. You also wrote books for the Muslim reader. So tell us about those books. Yes. Just as a, a, a Christians believe that Christ will come from the sky, Muslims believe that Islam is the last religion. These are the obstacles that prevent the followers of these two great religions from investigating another religion. So Christians say, if Jesus came from the sky, I would be the first one to see him. And Muslims feel very confident. They say, we know Muhammad is the last prophet. Why should we look into another religion? So I wrote a book called Muhammad, the Seal of Prophets. I did not even use my name and did not use any reference from the Baha'i writings. So they would trust my writing. It's all from the Quran. It's not from the Hadith. Virtually all the books that have been written so far by Baha'is are mostly from Hadith, sayings of Muhammad, not from the Quran. This book is entirely on the Quran. They cannot refute it. This is one book that I believe will convince every sincere Muslim that the Quran teaches the coming of many other religions, including the Bab and Baha'u'llah. Can you summarize your argument on why the interpretation that Muhammad is the seal of the prophets does not mean that he is the last prophet from God? Yes. Uh, You know, Baha'u'llah in the Book of Certitudes states that all messengers are one. So if Muhammad says, I'm the last prophet, Baha'u'llah says, I'm the first and the last. And in the book of Revelation, Jesus says, I'm the first and the last. So that's a spiritual meaning. That means Muhammad is the last and is the first. There is no separation between any of the great messengers. They all reflect the great spirit of God. And that is the spirit that speaks to us. So if that spirit says, I'm the first, correct. We do not look at the person of Muhammad but at the spirit that animates him, that inspires him, and the same with Baha'u'llah and Jesus. So they're all one. In fact, in the Quran says, we make no distinction between messengers. So that's a spiritual response. The other response is literal. The literal is this. The word that Muhammad uses is khatam. Khatam means seal. Muslims interpret since he is a seal of prophets, they put the seal at the end of a letter. Therefore, <laughs> he is the last one. Mm. Uh, but actually, uh, there are two words with clear meaning, but different pronunciation. One is khatam, means seal. One is khatim, means the last. And the argument in this case is that if Muhammad wanted to say he's the last prophet, he would use the word khatim, means the, the one at, at the last. In fact, I spoke with a Muslim from Sudan. He was highly educated. I gave him this reason. He said, no, this is not true. Bring the Quran. So the next day I brought the Quran to him. I showed him that it is khatam, means seal, not khatam, which means the end. He felt very anxious. Anxiety took over his face. He didn't know what to say. And he always avoided me after that. Arabic-speaking Muslims know the difference between these two words. 
But somehow, tradition has incredible powers. They believe what they are told by their leaders. Let me tell you about another book that I wrote for Muslims. I wrote a book, it's called Baha'u'llah in the Quran. This book is 900 pages. It's written in Farsi and is translated into Arabic and Urdu, Pashto, which is spoken in Afghanistan, and it is being right now translated into English. It is as comprehensive as those three volumes addressed to Christians. It proves that the coming of the Bab and Baha'u'llah are predicted throughout the Quran from the first verse to the last. Somehow they're in coded language. And the Bab and Baha'u'llah broke the code. And the basis of what they did and the knowledge that they revealed, I wrote that book, which took me 40 years to write, by the mm. way. In fact, Someone recently called me and said he was on Zoom and there was a lady in Afghanistan. I said, how did you become a Baha'i? And she said, I read Baha'u'llah in the Quran in Farsi because mm -hmm. they speak in Farsi also in Afghanistan. The problem is uh, people do not read. doesn't matter how much evidence you present. If they don't read, they won't know. These are the two books addressed to Muslims. So who should our... <laughs> You have a new project you're working on called The Most Astonishing Lesson of History, an invitation to all those who wish to live in peace and joy. Can you tell us about this project? Yes, this is my favorite project, and this is what I'm ready to talk about because I believe it's the key to everything else that I wrote. It opens the hearts and minds of 200 million Christians this book is about two volumes, each volume about 100 pages. You cannot imagine how difficult has been the writing of this book. I looked at the pile of papers that I wrote and printed on computer. It is about six feet high. So much written and rewritten, revised, because people do not trust strangers. They are afraid of strangers, so you need to approach them in a language that they will not be scared, they will not be afraid. This is the one I like to talk more than any other book. It is alive, moving forward. I will read you the first page of this. It says, first part, the light of knowledge for all lovers of light, those who believe in God and those who don't. My plan in writing this book is to start with God, with spiritual life, because there are many Christians who have lost their faith in God, and there are many atheists and agnostics. So the book starts with God and, and the afterlife. Here is a quotation, the first quotation they will read. Please ponder upon this self-evident truth. In darkness, everything looks the same. We cannot tell the difference between diamond and a broken piece of glass. Their difference and their worth is concealed under the cover of darkness. The same holds true with the spiritual or invisible dimension. Truth and falsehood show the same color. Only the light of knowledge can reveal their true color. This is what they will read first in this booklet. Okay. I can go on to give you a little bit about the content. The first part of the book I know people are not motivated to read, they don't love knowledge. 
they're suspicious, they're uh, anxious. So to get them to read is very difficult. And I use two quotations from the Bible, which also make sense logically to any non-believers. The first quotation says, through knowledge shall the just be saved. The second says, my people perish for lack of knowledge. So a lot of people think that they can be saved through ignorance. What is the opposite of knowledge? Is ignorance. Can we say through ignorance shall the just be saved? No, it's knowledge is the light of the soul. If they really believe in the Bible and if they're rational, if they're not even Christian, rational, they know that through knowledge they can change their lives. So that's the motivation. And then I quote the evidence for God and the afterlife. This is the common foundation. Uh, this is what we believe, Christians, Muslims, Jews, they all believe in God and afterlife. I quote a, a quotation from Jesus, says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The answer is hardly. We can see even Christians who are losing their faith. I just the other day went to a the church was outdoors. There were hardly, I could find any young person in this group. They were mostly old people. People are losing their faith every minute. More agnostics, more atheists, more non-believers. Then I start about God. You know, how could we know there is a God? The first thing I say, people trust scientists. I introduce a book written by someone who has three PhDs in sciences, like in physics and mathematics from prestigious universities. He's written a book called Can a Smart Person Believe in God? This author says it was destined that for him to write this book. And he makes a very interesting point. Uh, this comes from a scientist uh, that people trust. He says, to know God, you do not need a high IQ, intelligence quotient. You need a high SQ, a spiritual quotient. Just like any other task you must have a capacity if you want to be a, become a musician you must have a talent for being a musician even if you want to become a good cook you know everything every skill every achievement requires some kind of a skill some kind of ability so uh, knowing god also requires some degree of a spiritual fitness receptivity he says what people need to know God is a high SQ, not high IQ. And then uh, there is another book called God's Fingerprint, another written by scientists. He proves that the universe could not have happened by chance. He's, he's a great scientist. And then I quote and have a quotation that is wonderful from Einstein that people really trust. Einstein was not a religious person, but he, he did believe in a spirit that animates the universe. Here is a quotation from him. Everyone who is seriously involved in the pursuit of science becomes convinced that the spirit is manifest in the law of the universe, a spirit vastly superior to that of men, and one in the face of which we must, with our most powers, must feel humble. This is the quotation uh, from him. Many people believe that scientists do not believe in God. This is not true. Uh, scientists who have high IQ and high SQ, they all believe in God. Then I get into survival of the soul, because belief in God and survival of the soul are 
intimately connected. We cannot have a God without afterlife, and we cannot have afterlife without God. And then I uh, introduced a number of books. Uh, one that is very popular on the bestseller list is called Proof of Heaven, written by a surgeon brain specialist who works in Harvard Hospital. He died for 20 minutes. He, he was not a believer. He proves in this book, remember he's a specialist in brain. He said his brain was dead. There is no way he could have had the experiences he had, yet he was far more able while he was dead to perceive and think and experience life than he was alive before his near-death experience. So that's a very convincing book that uh, I introduced. And uh, there is another book called Seven Reasons to Believe in the Afterlife, written by a physician also. Probably there are 100 volumes on this subject. And according to uh, one expert, there are 60 million people throughout the world who have had near experience. All these books leave no doubt that those, there is a life beyond this life. And I have also published several books on my own compilation, mostly, uh, that have been very popular. The compilation from the writings of the Bible, the Quran and Baha'i writings, is called The Glorious Journey to God. One about Baha'i writings is called Unto God Shall Return. And then I wrote Death, the Door to Heaven. Any of these books will show you, give you a, a great deal of knowledge about the afterlife. Then I speak about the dream world that Baha'u'llah repeatedly says, that this is an evidence of the afterlife. We are inactive, we are in bed, our eyes are closed, and we hear, we travel, we experience life to its fullest. That is our soul that uh, has all that experience, sometimes even enters into the future. I know several people personally who dreamed of the future, and I have uh, also my own dream of the future, one dream. How could anyone know about the future without another dimension? There is no space and time. Whenever I speak about God, people have this question. They say, if there is a God, why is there so much suffering? You probably have heard that many times. I wrote a book, it's called The Spiritual Design of Creation. That introduces the spiritual world as God designed it, not as we expected. God's role is to give us guidance and invite us to seek him and search him, but he never forces us to do so. Now, I like to read another quotation from this invitation. It's called A Critical Law of the Design of Creation. I will read the quotation from this invitation. It's called One of the Laws of creation in both physical and spiritual dimension is this. To reach absolute certainty about anything, we must experience it. For instance, is there any way we can know this sweet taste of honey without tasting it? Can just hearing about it reveal true meaning of sweetness? Can it bring us a level of absolute certainty? Similarly, the way we can know for sure the sweet taste of knowing God and loving God is by experiencing it. Another example, if you had never seen light, could you picture the beauty and radiance just by hearing about it? Many people have not experienced it, just like a sweetness. You find a number of people, atheist, agnostic, 
They say, I never knew what I was missing until I gained that knowledge. Now I know what I was missing. But if you are missing and you never know what it means to be a lover of God, you may never be motivated. This is an extremely significant law of spiritual design of creation that I think everyone should think about it. You know, the Christians, as soon as you tell them about the return of Christ, they say, you know, if Jesus had come, I would see him. They expect him to come from the clouds. Jesus said, I have come down from the sky. The Pharisees say, surely this is Jesus, son of Joseph. We know his father and mother. How can he say, I have come down from the sky? The key to understanding the meaning of a sky, Jesus gave us very clear in these two verses. And in another instance, the coming of Elijah as John the Baptist. He gave us the key. And as long as the, the obstacle Christians face is a literal mind, as long as they think with a literal mind, they will be unable to see the glory of God become manifest through Baha'u'llah. The other predictions about Elijah had gone to the sky and the Jews expected him to come back from the sky. And Jesus said, John is the destined Elijah, Matthew 11, 1. So John the Baptist was another person. He was born. How could be the return of Elijah? We have the key to understanding the meaning of these prophecies because God speaks to in two languages, literal and spiritual. And that is what caused the Jews not be able to recognize Jesus. I have made a column of all the promises that are in the Bible, and I like to read that from the, this invitation. I compare the physical world with the spiritual world. Jesus comes down from the sky. Jesus is a spirit. Only his spirit comes from above. Jesus comes down with angels. Jesus will be surrounded by faithful believers. His early fearless believers are two angels. Every eye shall see him. Every eye in the spirit shall see him. He will rise on the clouds. His glory will be concealed by illusions. He will take the true believers to heaven. He will take the spirit of true believers to heaven. He will kill the non-believers. Believe it or not, many Christian interpreters of prophecy, they, they say Jesus comes and kills hundreds of millions of people, non-believers. You find it in all prophecy interpretation. He will kill the non-believers, the spiritual meaning. Those who deny him commit a spiritual suicide. By their own choice, they deprive themselves of everlasting life. The earth will be destroyed. The old order will be destroyed. A new sun will emerge. A new redeemer will shine. The star shall fall. The religious leaders who deny him shall fall from grace. A new Jerusalem will descend from heaven. A new heavenly civilization will be established. God's kingdom on earth will become a reality. The dead will rise out of their graves. Those who recognize the new Redeemer will come alive. They will be born again. The dead in Christ will rise first. Those who kill their ego in Christ will be the first one to gain the spiritual knowledge. There will be war between forces of Christ and those of non-believers. There will be wars between the new believers and those who deny him. These are the parallel between the physical and the spiritual world. And if you look at some of them, you know it, they don't make sense because they believe Jesus will come down with millions of angels and start a war. 
Jesus was the most loving, gentle person ever came to this earth. The fallacy of their literal thinking is as evident as the sun. Tradition has immense power. And then I get into the misinterpretation, the acknowledgement by some of the great religious leaders of Christianity who admit that our interpretation of prophecy can be wrong. I like to read a quotation from the most significant theologian of last century. Here's a quotation by Dr. James Kennedy, who quotes him. It's the great Princeton theologian of the last century, Dr. Charles Hodge. He said that though the Old Testament is filled with some 333 prophecies concerning the first coming of Christ, in spite of that, nobody got it right. And as you know, they crucified Christ because of misunderstanding about the way Messiah was really coming. Because of that, be somewhat humbled and modest in our attempts to interpret prophecies concerning the second coming of Christ. It is quite possible that all of us leaders are wrong as well. This is an amazing acknowledgement from two theologians about how wrong they can be in insisting that they know the meaning of prophecies. And then I mentioned two quotations from the Bible that every person should memorize. Uh, it says in the Gospel, no prophecy of a scripture is a private personal interpretation. And then the second quote, make no premature judgment. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness. So Christians are not permitted to interpret prophecies. These are some of the ideas in this book. So I'm speaking with Hushadar Matlach, professor of emeritus at Central Michigan University. He's the author of more than 50 volumes on topics such as the knowledge of God, understanding the Bible, and the Quran. Hushadar, you also have a website called globalperspective.org. Can you tell us about that? Yes. This was one of the decisions I made early to make my books available directly to people and promote it because promotion is the key to knowledge. Without promotion, there is no way we can reach people. So Global Perspective has been very successful, attracting interested readers. We probably have sold about 100 volumes to Global Perspective over the course of 40 years. And still we have a good supply of these books, which we'll be glad to send freely to anyone who's interested. And my wife has had a great share in typesetting these books and mailing them to these people. Without her support, I could not have succeeded. Still, this exists, this website, but I'm 87, and I don't know how many more years I have left. I'm trying to find a board of directors to continue the website, so it will continue to exist in the future. And why did you choose the name Global Perspective for the <laughs> Of course, uh, we Baha'is have a global perspective. Most of the problems in the world is because people think of me and now. If they could expand their vision from me to humankind and now to forever, this world will become a paradise. The problem is this self-centered view that most people have. Therefore, the idea of global perspective comes from my vision what I learned from the Baha'i faith that we need to look at the entire world. Every problem is universal. It is not just connected to where we live. This is the reason I chose global perspective. 
And there's also another website called theknowledgeofgod.com. Tell us about this site and what people will find when they land on it. Yes. We learned that some people may not want to buy books. So we have a website, knowledgeofgod.com, where they can download all of the books that I have written for free. Many people live outside this country, shipping expensive, and many people don't want to buy a book. So we made it available to all people throughout the world on that website. So if you like to see, read any of those books, go to that website. Pushadar, I want to thank you so much for telling your story and telling us about the books you've written and the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Great honor to share. I've never told my story, and I'm honored to be able to, at the end of my life, to share this story, which my, many of my students said, it's, this deserves to be a movie. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, someone should make a movie out of this. I'm honored to share it with you. Thank you for listening and sharing. All right. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Hushadar Mathla, author of over 50 volumes related to the subjects of the knowledge of God, understanding the Bible and the Quran, and the fulfillment of prophecies from both religions. You can find his work at globalperspective.org and at the website theknowledgeofgod.com. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website abahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel A Baha'i Perspective. You can also find the podcast on iTunes and in Spotify. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Righteousness is weak and faints, and unrighteousness exalts in pride. Then my spirit arises on earth. For the salvation of those who are good, for the destruction of evil in men, for the fulfillment of the kingdom of righteousness, I come to this world. From age to age. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice, from henceforth, even forever.
When a thousand two hundred and some years have passed from the inception of the religion of the Arabian and the overthrow of the kingdom of Iran and the degradation of the followers of my religion, a descendant of the Iranian kings will be raised up as a prophet. shall I be the last. In due time, another Buddha will arise in the world, a holy one, a supremely enlightened one, endowed with wisdom and conduct, auspicious, knowing the universe, an incomparable leader of men, a master of angels and mortals. He will reveal to you the same eternal truths which I have taught you. He will preach his religion, glorious at the goal, in the spirit and in the letter. He will proclaim a religious life, holy, perfect, and pure, such as I now proclaim. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, God says, God is the light of the heavens and the earth. His light is like a niche in which is a lamp, the lamp encased in glass, the glass as it were a brilliant star, lit from a blessed tree, an olive, of neither the east nor of the west, whose oil is beginning to burst into light, though no fire has touched it. 
light upon light, God guideth whomsoever he willeth to his light, and of all things God is knowing. But Isaiah goes on to say they shall see the light.
back with Abraham Never leave man alone So Abraham gathered his family Brought his people From a burning bush And put together his first tribe Oh, God. 